Hello and welcome to the Unpruned Podcast. My name is Sarah Brown and this is a series of Garden Organic interviews where we let our guests chat at length on a subject which is close to their heart. You may have heard them speak in our monthly podcast, but here we give the full interview. Often the topic is too important or too riveting for us to press the edit button. In gardening terms, you could say we're happy to leave their words unpruned. Our guest this month is Dr. Ian Bedford. Ian is a renowned entomologist who has studied insects all his working life. He and Chris talk about the drastic decline in insects. For those of you who heard Ian talk in our April podcast, it's really well worth listening again, because in this longer version, we hear more about Ian's particular guide to organic gardening, where he thinks garden centres can help, his love of butterflies, and how he's witnessing the impact of climate change. But before we start, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils, and balms. I love the way they call themselves, the vitamin company with an organic heart. Their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. So to find out more, visit viridian-nutrition.com. That's Viridian, spelt with a V for Victor. And now we join Chris and Ian down the line. Well, another treat for me on the Garden Organic Podcast today, because I'm with, and I've known for a while now, Mr. Ian Bedford, who's former head of entomology from John Innes Centre, who's now very busy. I think you're probably busier now than you are ever, aren't you? I am. <laughs> it's been quite surprising, really. And I've uh, oh, been retired for a year now, just over a year. And you always hear people saying, once you retire, there's never enough time to do anything. And I can guarantee it's true. I just wonder, I don't want to shock people, but how badly have insect levels declined in recent years? Yeah, well, since the 70s, they reckon that about half the uh, insect numbers around the world have been lost and it's continuing to decline. And there's about 400,000 species that are heading towards extinction at the moment that are known about. You look at the, the, the tropical rainforests, they reckon that you know we're, we're losing um, species that have never had a chance to even be discovered. And some of these things hold such amazing, uh, vital pieces of um, uh, things which actually help the human race. I mean, even down to things like spiders. I mean, the work that's being done now on, on, on spiders' webs to find that the webbing is, um, is much stronger than, than steel. Mm. And that, uh, you know, you can actually um, put spiders' webs into a, a weave and, uh, and stop a small bullet from going through. It's, it's phenomenal stuff. And you think how you could actually... But it, it brings to life, doesn't it, the, uh, the Spider-Man stories where you, know, you can protect yourself <laughs> yeah. with, with, with something that spiders have developed over millions of years. Yeah, the, the sadness, uh, sad part of actually losing these species before they're discovered is that there could be so many wonderful cures and things to, to problems that we actually currently have and we'll never get to know about it. It's kind of like we're burning down a natural laboratory, isn't it? That, you know, that is that kind of yeah, good way to analyse it. And I suppose that, I mean, listening to that, to me, that's a brilliant rally call, rallying call for everyone out there to, to be more concerned about this. Um, I know Garden Organic would, would embrace that. And, and you think that is, do you think that's down to our chemical use? What, what would you put that down to? You... Well, I think it's a combination of things. But I think, you know, chemicals have definitely played a role in this. I mean, we've been using, since the sort of late 80s, the neonicotinoid pesticides, which are very long-lasting and they get into the soil. They use this, they have been used as seed treatments for major crops such as wheat, seed rape, um, sugar beet. And the active ingredients stay in the soil. They move through the, the water. They go to the margins. They get taken up by the wildflowers. And because 
such a large quantity has been used on the seeds. Estimates are it's probably around 15% of the chemical that's on the seed gets taken up by the plant. The rest stays in the ground, moves out to the margins, and you end up with contamination of all the wildflowers around the crops. So that's been the big, big problem with this. And these products have been banned the past four years now but they're still in the soil. They last many, many years. So it's the longevity of the chemicals, is it? There's a real major issue. The yeah. fact that they, they don't just disappear. Because we're always told with glyphosate, once it hits the ground, it's neutralised. Is that a myth? No, no that those types of chemicals do have, you know, break down very quickly. And so does right. pyrethrum. Right. And pyrethroids. And, um, yeah, ironically, uh, maybe this is something that we would touch on with the organic side of things. I mean, pyrethrum is approved for organic growing and agriculture and whatever, but it's a broad spectrum insect killer. Right. So in my mind, how can that be classed as an organic product if it's killing all the beneficial insects? So, so yeah, it's so it's taking out the ones that are good for us as well. Exactly. You know, people and people don't know what they buy. They buy bug killer. They take it off the shelf in the garden center. They don't look at the little small writing on the back to see it says pyrethrum or acetamaprid or thioclopril. Or and they don't know that that is a long, well, in the, in the case of the neonicotinoids, a long lasting insecticide or um, with the pyrethrum, but it's a broad spectrum killer. So you spray it on your rose aphids, you kill ladybirds, you kill ladybird larvae, you kill the lace wings, you know, the parasitic wasps, everything else that's there building up to try and control the aphids naturally. So I'm a great believer that, you know, we have to try and find alternatives to these broad spectrum chemicals. And they have a use in protected growing, but not in the wider outside garden environment. I don't want to use any kind of spray in my, my garden, especially on my allotment, because I consume, I eat that, that exactly. produce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's, it's understanding insects, when they're going to be active, when they're not. Understanding life cycles, I suppose. Is that is that a good part of maybe able to predict and, and, and get healthier crops? Absolutely. It's an understanding that um, healthy ecosystems depend on um, healthy food chains. And that means you start off, you know, at the base with your plants. I mean, they're the things which get eaten, first of all, by, you know, the first base of insects but they're then controlled by the the next layers so unless you actually allow that to happen and you're going to have to put up with a little bit of damage to begin with you're not going to end up with a healthy environment which is managed naturally you have to allow time for the predators and parasites to build up because they don't breed at the same rate as the initial bugs that infest the plants and if you look at a typical year and we go back to the roses again the first things you see on the roses are those aphids but they're there as a major food source for the blue tits. But while the blue tits are taking lots of those, you're also getting the ladybirds waking up, laying their eggs on the on the plants so their eggs can hatch into the little grubs that will start eating the aphids. You'll get the parasitic wasps emerging. You'll have the hoverflies laying their eggs. So eventually you end up a whole community which is balanced by the good bugs who feed on the bad bugs. And theoretically, you should be able to just let your garden get on with it. I mean, there's little things you can do which are safe for everything. Like, you know, if you haven't got the blue tits there to, <laughs> to take you know, the majority of the aphids. And that's simply to use a fine spray of water. You know, the adapters that you can have on the hoses. Twist them around to the flat fan setting and just zip that water up and down your rose. It won't damage the plants, but it'll knock the aphids for six. Two or three times a week, you know, if you go out to water the garden, just knock the aphids off, keep their numbers lower, and then you let the beneficial insects build up. It's very, very simple, but it does involve understanding not only the life cycles of the pests and the beneficials, but how they work together. And patients and observation, on my allotment, I tend to put in plants that are going to encourage predators, like fennel for hoverfly, that kind of thing. How yeah. about I, what I tend to do is I plant them in strips along the sides of my allotment, so you've got it covers the whole length. Is that a good idea? What are ways we can encourage predators in to keep control of things like aphids? Well, well, certainly, because I, I think, you know, the, the adults of things like, you know, the parasitic wasps and, um, you know, the hoverflies and lacewings, they will feed on nectar. 
So you need something that's, you know, high levels of nectar to, to, to draw them in initially. Then they will find out that there's the good food source there for their grubs, their larvae, so they'll lay their eggs on them. But a lot of people will be growing these things as companion plantings for, for other reasons, because, you know, it's, there's plenty of literature out there showing that, you know, you, perhaps you, you plant, um, I don't know, there's one that I was thinking, that rosemary is something that's supposedly going to deter carrot root fly. Well, it might do, but the rosemary then attracts something <laughs> like um, the rosemary leaf beetles, <laughs> which will then go feeding your lavenders. So it's a case of, you know, you've got, you've got to put together a, a, a really sort of nice package, but to look at every component of it and make sure that you're not actually creating more problems by doing this than by leaving it alone. <laughs> so in a way, I suppose, companion plant, it's one thing, you couldn't describe it as scientific, really, could you? It's, not, it's something that gardeners have done for a long time. Yeah. But actually planting um, to encourage predators, that's a bit more accurate in a way. Yes. Well, we know that, you know, that by, by planting um, plants which are very colourful, things which have high levels of nectar, you'll not only get those types of beneficial bugs that we just mentioned, but you'll also bring in the pollinators. So you'll have the bumblebees and the solitary bees, and that, which will then help to pollinate the crops that you're growing as well. So, yeah, you know, I'd say to people that the best thing to do is to have um, some of these ty- really brightly coloured and high nectar producing plants in tubs and to move them around the allotment or around where you're growing as and when the, the, the various crops need pollinating. So, you know, when, when your um, courgettes come into flower, for example, you know, you can, you can bring this big tub of highly uh, colourful plants near to the courgettes or the beans or whatever and get the pollinators to come in to, to work on them as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just putting a nice little package together. And there's no harm at all in, in following some of the suggestions that um, are made through the companion planting literature garlic for example what's wrong with just planting bulbs of garlic around everywhere you don't have to actually have them in lines just pop them near where you think there's going to be aphid problems and hopefully they'll uh, they'll help to reduce the aphid numbers but there's some other things as well which i actually looked at on a science level um you probably heard about planting marigolds uh-huh, yes. to repel whitefly well it does have an effect on whitefly but it doesn't repel them <laughs> what it does the actual colors of, of those marigolds the bright oranges and yellows attract the adult whitefly and if you look under the under the petals you'll find lots of these whitefly just sitting there and they even lay their eggs on the petals so it actually keeps them off so your you're tomatoes encouraging them, you're encouraging them in a way well possibly but then again <laughs> they'll, they'll land on those colorful things and they'll be actually then landing on the tomatoes to lay their eggs because they prefer the colors right. the so, so that's, that's keeping that's them that off your main look. crop that's keeping them off your main crop yeah and so i love that idea of roving uh, nectar sources being able to move it around and that's yeah. down to life cycles again isn't it like, i'm a big balcony gardener i'm up here on the third floor i've oh, seen your lovely balcony yes yeah. yeah, so i do love my balcony <laughs> can people get a lot of wildlife onto their balconies it's a lot of insect life is it quite easy to do well yes if you, you plant the right plants you will attract them because uh, in fact some of these sort of urban areas are, are, are actually attracting a lot more of the pollinators than some of the more rural areas where there's you know, plants which are being contaminated with the pesticides and i mean going back to this thing about the, the insects on the windscreens as well something that i've always thought about is that where the councils plant all these plants for pollinators down the sides of busy roads and even in the middle you imagine how much physical control is going on with those cars it's a bit like fly swats all the time bashing yeah, these yeah. insects so you know you have a, the chance of a bee traveling from the middle to the side and not getting hit by a car is pretty slim in many cases so over the years i think that results in phenomenal numbers of, of insects being killed well when i go fishing it's um it's a different um, subject matter but i i go very early on a sunday morning and i'm always shocked about the amount of 
dead animals on our roads. Mm. And so it, I wonder whether, do we set up corridors for these, for, for, for both insects and wildlife and to make sure, because traffic is a big issue, isn't it? It is. And in fact, that's something that's happening now. We've got these things called bee lines, mm. you may have heard of, where yeah. uh, people are actually setting up these, these corridors for the bees to move from one place to another. And there's one that I was uh, looking at online. They've um, set up this bee line right across Wales. Fantastic, you know. And it just means so many people can get involved as well with this. And I've always said that everybody who has a garden has a part of that big jigsaw puzzle. You know, if you know what is good for these beneficial bugs, we can all contribute. We can all be part of that big jigsaw puzzle to try and improve the environment. So in a way, um, organisations like Garden Organic, the work you do, John Innes, mm-hmm. all these, but we need yeah. to be out sort of fight in that corner and but if you were just a you know a, 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 just a gardener and all you know but we're obviously organic gardens but if you were a gardener with a small back garden there are a few things what would you be your top tips to to encourage insects in obviously flowers is an obvious one but are there others well i mean the flowers are obvious but we have to be a little bit careful there as well because you may have seen the publication that came out of sussex university in 2017 by um, professor dave golson yes and his team you know i think it was 79 percent of the plants that he was he bought from um retailers contained the neonicotinoid pesticides and these were things which had the rhs logo as perfect for pollinators on them so people were going into shops into the retailers buying these taking them home and not realizing that for probably three or four years for the sort of perennial plants that 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 three or four years down the line they still have those toxic chemicals in them and the you know butterflies and bees that are being attracted to the flowers would be getting a dose of the chemicals and many people that i've spoken to about this are, are really angry you know, that they've gone out and spent their money on, on plants for, particularly for the pollinators in the garden, to find that they've actually been contaminated. So that would be a great starting point to try and stop this use of them. But it's all about traceability. I, f- I find around here that um, when I go to a garden centre, I, I can ask and say, can you guarantee these plants haven't been treated with systemics? And most of them go out of their way to find out. You know, th- there's a, a, a large garden centre down the road. While I was there, the guy phoned up his suppliers and could tell me which plants had been treated and which hadn't. But wouldn't it be great if these garden centres actually labelled plants? So is that the answer, do you think? Just clearer messaging about source, basically. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? About where stuff comes from and how it's been produced, uh, whether it's local, that kind of thing. Making that messaging far clearer is, is a big step forward. Absolutely. And I'm sure that many of the producers of these plants probably don't realise how long these chemicals last for because you know they'll use compost that have the chemicals already mixed in with it to grow their little um, seedlings on and their plants on and not know that by the time you know two or three years down the line when people are still giving delivering toxins to that garden environment but most people well i haven't come across anybody who's actually said that um you know we should cover this up they've always wanted to be open about the fact that chemicals and give people the choice and I think the garden centres that did this and identified which plants had been treated not would be quite surprised at how the sales changed because people would go to those areas to buy the plants which hadn't got the chemicals. So in a way, it's an opportunity for horticulture, isn't it? It's an opportunity because we could be um, leading from the front on these things. We could open up new horizons, couldn't we, in how we're perceived if, if we get this right, especially the retail end of things. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's not just with the plants. It's with, you know, the products that you could use as alternatives to these broad-spectrum chemicals. And there's plenty out there now. I mean, before we got into this lockdown situation, I was visiting garden centres and, and giving them this idea that they should set up these green zones where people could come in and not have to try and search through the back label of a product to find out what the active ingredient was and then to try and identify whether that active ingredient was toxic to beneficial insects. But to purely go in, walk to an aisle which said safe products, the green zone, 
take anything off the shelves there and know that it wasn't going to harm the bugs in their garden that they didn't want to harm. Many, well, all, all the garden centres, to be honest, that I spoke to about this were very, very keen to do so. Um, if I go to a garden centre, um, there's a rack with gloves in it, there's a rack with sacketeers, there's a rack with Wellington's. You're saying there should be a, a rack where it goes, these, will, these, these products are going to be guaranteed green yeah. safe. Yeah, that's what you're, you're looking at. Absolutely. And, and, and in the case of the, the slug control methods, you know, um, why would people really want to use slug pellets which kill all the species of slugs when out of the 42 species we have in the, the UK, only six or seven are a problem? They'll be killing all, all the good slugs as well. But if they have a choice to actually use an effective deterrent and to protect the plants by putting something around them, which offered a, a fairly good level of control, but it didn't kill the slugs, that's a far better thing to do because it, it then leaves the slugs there for the wildlife that feed on slugs as well. You know, and we start to see an increase in the number of thrushes that we get in our gardens and, you know, even down to slow worms, which feed on the little grey um, uh, Durosaurus slugs. You know, years ago when I lived in Brighton, you know, we could find slow worms every year in the garden. You were glad to hear I found one on my balcony. Am I not my balcony? Am I allotment yesterday? But you're right, they were rare. Yes, I did a big one as well. But I think that's probably, I think that's because I just don't use any chemical on there. I I just don't use any at all. I wonder whether that's part of it. But you make a really interesting point there that not all slugs are bad because I just don't think people know that. They slug gotta destroy it end of story and and, uh, and i see pellets being used on, on uh, out and about it's just not just they put a few pellets they absolutely smother it with pellets as yeah. well so what kind of effect is that happening having on the soil oh exactly I, and i mean that there are very strict um, guidelines for commercial growers to use slug pellets it's uh, what's that is it 200 pellets per square meter per crop per year that's the maximum they could put on but as you've said, I, I come across many people who said that they turn their borders blue with them <laughs> because they hate the slugs so much. But, you know, those are chemicals which are going to be taken down into the soil. And in the case of the metaldehyde, it gets into the, uh, the, all the water courses. But it was due to be banned, um, I think it's the beginning of this year, but that's now been delayed. They put that and, back, yeah. Yeah, so at least by well, March, the end of March 2022, metaldehyde will be banned from use. But... I only heard today from uh, somebody who was quite concerned that people are wanting to stockpile these now because, you know, for people who aren't too concerned about protecting the environment and, and the metaldehyde in particular is incredibly toxic to mammals and birds. I was shown oh, some agonizing, um, horrible pictures of, of hedgehogs that had died through eating slugs that, that, that are fed on um, metaldehyde pe- pellets and they're all twisted where they died in agony. And I think if people saw that, they would never use those pellets in their garden again. But we have to be very careful how we, we deal with the re- removal of pesticides because we still need to produce food. Mm-hmm. And if we do ban all these things, then it leaves the commercial growers without anything to protect their crops. And then we're in a, another big pickle. But, you know, as far as home gardeners go, I don't think there's any reason, as, as you've said, for, for anybody to use chemicals in a, in a garden environment where we can tolerate a little bit of damage. So you're in a way, that's right. So that I don't think there's any reason uh, um, for the consumer to be using chemicals at all. And as far as um, farming, that that's that's something we need to work towards. Is what you're saying? To, mm. You know, we need to be looking at bio controls, things like Encarcia, obviously, you know, the parasitic wasps, this kind of stuff. We could there be organic methods out there, but doing it on scale is a challenge. It, it is, and and particularly for field crops because it's very difficult to use bio control in a in a field crop environment and everybody's you know so sort of fixated with having perfect veg now and you see the amount of veg that's actually wasted because it isn't the right shape or or whatever (laughs) you know we we have to be more tolerant of that i think as well because 
the only way that these the growers are getting this perfect veg is by controlling the things that make it imperfect you know it's 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 a very difficult juggling act i think to to get to that that point but we've just seen with the uh, with the oilseed rape crops that when they um took away the neonicotinoid pesticides that were being used to control flea beetle and and the brevicarani brassica the um the mealy cabbage aphids that those numbers slowly increased even though there'd still be residual chemicals in the soil but yeah they'd be depleting but these pests became such a big problem that growers were not able to actually produce a viable crop. And is that, is that in a way, people like yourself and that are working towards that goal and people who are in um, agriculture, scientific agriculture, is this what we're, is there a, a good look at, are we all having a look at this now is what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the key things that goes on at uh, John Ennis, um, particularly when I was there and, and we'll be going on, you know, as we speak now, that looking for alternatives to protect crops. And uh, it's difficult because you kind of have to juggle, as you said, the environmental issues as well as you know the ethical side of things, and at the end of the day, be able to produce enough food <laughs> to feed an ever increasing seven billion population. people. So in a way, you could say that it's our biggest humanity's biggest challenge in a way, isn't it? Because obviously, yeah, it's environmental, and it's and we all need to eat. So it's it's the big subject matter, isn't it? that, and obviously the destruction of uh, of natural habitat, which is obviously being done so we can all eat as well. Coming back mm-hmm. back to um, the, the little humble gardener and his his eight by eight in his back garden. Do you, yeah. you know this year was a Amazing, uh, you know, for black aphid, wasn't it? Black fly. I had incredible amounts of it. But you're saying now, out in the, in the consumer market, there are products we can use to control those things that are going to damage the environment. Yeah. Well, I also had problems with the, uh, the the black bean aphids on my um, on my broad beans, and just using that um, the hose extension thing. Day, I'd just go there and I'd be zipping off the most you know highly populated yeah. things and kept it totally under control. You know, the ants were still there going up and down and try, trying to reestablish. <laughs> yeah, the the yeah. So there are there are uh, methods. And if you if you had a really bad infestation, you would say using an organic spray would be a sort of last resort, would it? It would be, but saying that we we've got um, some products which are soap based on the market. One in particular, you know, we we we, we looked at this um, uh, as impartial investigators um, many years ago, and uh, just to see how it actually worked. And insects have a waxy coating on them, and that waxy coating actually stops them from drowning when it rains or from the condensation. When it just in the same way, wax paper. You put water on it, it just runs straight off. And, and brassica leaves as well. You've seen how it beads and just runs off the brassica leaves. So if you spray them with a soap-based product, it overcomes that. And in fact, it makes that waxy coat sticky. And it can either allow the water to go in to the spiracles and then, then the, the insect could drown. Or it actually washes them off the surface. And in fact, if you go to some of the biocontrol producing companies, that's how they remove the parasitized whitefly scales from leaves. They wash them off with, with a detergent. It detaches them from the leaves. So this is basically how these products work. And the more robust insects, which are the, would be the beneficials, the ladybirds, you know, and the, the bees and, and, and things like that, they're not affected by this. They can pull away, you know, from, from, from these, these soap-based sprays. So I would say if you do want to use a spray, go for something like, well, this one's called SB Plant Invigorator, which I'm sure you've heard of, you know. But yes. It's not okay for organic use because of the legislation or the rules, because it contains synthetic soaps in it. But it's a darn sight more you know, safer for the environment than a pyrethrum, uh-huh. which is quite bizarre because, you know, you, you go and spray a pyrethrum, you will kill everything that that spray touches and yet that's an organic spray and this is where i think there's some things which need to be you know sorted out um in the future because particularly with the people i talk to at the garden clubs the vast majority think as soon as it has the organic label on it it's classed as safe and they're quite horrified to think that something is a chemical (laughs) but it's still classed as being organic 
Again, yeah, like you say, things. labeling, that kind of stuff, making sure that the information's clear. That, yeah, that, that, that's the way forward, definitely. But how many companies would produce a product and have right on that front label saying, kills aphids, but also kills bees? <laughs> it's not <laughs> going to sell it, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, but it, it'll be, it's true. You know, that's what. <laughs> and, and I suppose, in a way, that's, that's a, almost a law issue as well, isn't it? That it or do we allow these products? Do we, do, is, do you think it comes down to legislation, some of it? Yes. I, I think, well, it's all down to giving people choice, isn't it? I mean, there's going to be people who, who, who won't mind risking the beneficials as long as they can actually control the bugs on their crops. Well, that's, that's fair enough. But from my experience, the vast majority of people I speak to want to protect that garden environment. And they get quite angry and, 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 and are shocked to know that they've been doing things which will have been damaging the wildlife. And that is because they haven't been given all the information. So I, this is going back to this thing with the, the, the retailers, that if the manufacturers of the products can't clearly identify the issues beneficial wildlife will have caused by their products, then it has to be the retailers which give the information to the people. And I think in the long run, people will learn to respect the retailers a lot more if they're giving this sort of information. And so that you could go into a, a shop and, and, and come away feeling happy that you've got something that's not going to affect you know, the bees, the butterflies and the hedgehogs and frogs and toads, etc. Yeah, the demand's growing, isn't it? People are more and more aware of the fact that they don't want to carry on polluting their planet as much as they have been in the past so the ignorance is lifting but uh, obviously retail and all of us as individuals need to make sort of that effort don't they yeah absolutely and also the other thing is that you know people think if you're going to protect the wildlife you end up with a real sort of messy garden that has to basically look like you know some sort of the wilderness and, and that certainly isn't the case and i mean the with yeah, my family here, and particularly my wife, who who doesn't like bugs very much, and certainly, yeah, she had the right man then, you know. <laughs> oh God, yeah. <laughs> but but, um, but no, but she she needs a nice tidy garden, Ooh. and and she sort of said that oh, wouldn't it be better just have a, a a lawn with pretty flowers all around the outside or something? Well, no, <laughs> we definitely not have that. But I do have a t- what I call a tidy garden, but all the borders are set up so that it's good for wildlife. I plant the plants which I know will attract them, give shelter and, and, and protection as well as the food of the wildlife. And I keep an eye open for what visits the garden as well. And, you know, I, I noticed that I was getting a lot of uh, brimstone butterflies, for example, coming in to feed on, on the buddleias and, and the, uh, the verbenas and that. And I know that the only host plant that their larvae feed on is, um, is buckthorn. So I bought some bare root buckthorns mm-hmm. a couple of years ago put them all around the edge of the garden. And this year, loads of brimstone caterpillars. So it's worked, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laid in the garden, laid their eggs. And mixing the plant in, like like you said, in Buckthorn, but having, having, you know, it doesn't have to be all Mm. too much of the same thing, does it? I mean, my balcony, I think, one of the reasons it's successful is I I grow a lot, I try to mix the the cropping up as much as possible, as edibles, as herbs, as roses. So you just mix things together. Is Is that a good idea? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, that is the way to go. I mean, I was quite, quite sad um, last year as well, because they, at the bottom of the garden, I had this wonderful ivy hedge. And uh, <laughs> there was a fence there years ago, but the ivy took over and the, the wooden <laughs> fence. Did, but, but the plot at the bottom was bought by somebody who um, then decided to build a big house there and to take that hedge down and put up a nice concrete and, and wooden thing. So you know, I could see the impact it had on the garden there by losing that, that ivy. So what I've done now is to start planting things on my side, which are natural, things like the hawthorns. And you can get amazing different colours. And this spring, you know, I had the, the, the double white-flowered hawthorns, the pink hawthorns, the deep red ones, all mingled in together. It looked amazing. Yeah, brilliant. And I'm going to 
you know, trim those. So I've, I've basically making a cloud hedge, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah. So it's just you know up up high, so I can still get underneath, and I'm planting raspberries under there. And but um, so mixing that, making sure you've got like a mosaic, isn't it? I suppose of planting. It is. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and but it's just keeping aware of what's going on in the garden as well. And you know, some things won't work, and some things will. You know, I had some success last year, but I, I've always tried messing about with companion planting, and it's it's never really worked. But I actually grew some rhubarb, and then put the runner beans up to grow through the rhubarb. And I thought, well, the leaves are going to protect the young runner beans from the frost, so I can plant them in earlier. Uh-huh. And sure enough, the runner beans came through. And when they got up and started cutting the light out, the rhubarb produced longer stems and sweeter stems. And it was fantastic. Wow. So a re- really good crop of rhubarb and a really good crop <laughs> of beans. Beans. I'm going to try beans, that, yeah. mate. I'm going to try that. That's a good tip, though. I, yeah. I, I have to ask as well, I mean, you're like me as a plantsman. It's very hard to pin certain things down when it comes to favourites. But what do you enjoy most seeing? You mentioned the butterflies there. What do you enjoy most seeing in your garden? What gives you the biggest buzz? Uh, well, it, it, it definitely is the butterflies. I mean, that's how I started off my my love of entomology. I was uh, born in Brighton and used to spend my youth running around the, uh, the South Downs. <laughs> Those were amazing well, days. I'm a, Bright- I'm a Brighton lad, mate, so I know it well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, brilliant. But yeah, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, your mum and dad used to just say, get on your bike, clear off. You know, we don't want to see you till, uh, till tea time. And you'd cycle off for miles and, you know, nobody worried. But, and you probably know, um, oh, there's an old, railway embankment as you come down from uh, devil's dyke that goes yes i know it well yeah, yeah. I, I used to go down there and uh, i'm not kidding you had to it was a job not to tread on butterflies there were so many absolutely astonishing in those days but sadly you do not see that anymore so they're particularly sensitive to uh to, to climatical changes and yeah. chemical changes so they're, they're the first to feel it aren't they in many ways they are. They, they, in fact, they're used as an indicator as to the health of ecosystems because where the butterfly populations are declining, there's something not quite right. And, and they've been hit quite badly with these neonicotinoid pesticides. And there's a direct correlation between butterfly decline rates and where these chemicals have been used extensively. And East Anglia, unfortunately, is a place where butterfly decline is pretty serious. Up in Scotland, where they don't use those chemicals so much, it's, it's, it's stable, but it's still, it's still not good. But uh, yeah, so butterflies have always had that. Uh, yeah, uh, it's always been the start of my love of entomology. But nowadays, I'm really interested in seeing how, particularly, some of the invasive species are adapting to the environment. And you, we've seen the, the, the tree bumblebees, mm-hmm. Bombus hypnorum, that, that go into the old um, bird boxes and that. And fascinating to see how well they're doing. And you know, and, and to teach people not to panic when they see all these stingless males that are all sort of swarming around the outside of it. So it's quite um, important, isn't it, to um, to um, not just it, this whole sort of religion it has to be native. The world's changed too much for that, isn't it? Do you think we need to be much yeah. more broader-minded about it? We, we have to be. Um, we, we we know that the climate is changing, and we can see that with so many different species as well. And we've we've got cases of you know dragonflies and damselflies, where species have basically disappeared and they've been replaced by other ones that have come in from Europe and are doing really well. And we are seeing that with the butterflies. Um, we're seeing species like um, the silver-washed fritillaries that are now coming back to areas uh, where they were known to be before, but they're not just coming back in sort of small numbers. They're doing incredibly well. And then we're losing the small tortoiseshells, the nymphalid dyes, which were the more temperate species. You, you, you don't go down to Southern Europe and see small tortoiseshells. They don't, they don't like that extensive heat. And so it tells you that they need to be in a more temperate climate. 
And with the heat that we've been having in our summers, it's had a direct impact on reducing them. So you, you don't see so much of them. But, but with the silver wash fritillaries, which are very common all through Southern Europe, you know, they're doing incredibly well. So they're Purple indicators. And butterflies are indicators to what's going on. And they're, 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 they're a window to the bigger picture in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, they are. We should really be taking note of this. And, uh, and you know, it's, it is, as you said, strong indicator that things are changing. But we have to embrace this because certain things we I think it's too late to change, to be honest. You know, we're getting to a point now where we have to try and um, almost like level things off without letting it get too much worse. But to try and go backwards, I think, is, is just it's an impossibility. Tricky. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, yeah. and it, with the whole COVID thing, I always feel like nature's been able to take a breath, hasn't it? The fact that we've been all locked away for a little while is it's almost indirectly done the bigger picture a favour, maybe, giving it a time to breathe, you know, and, uh, and maybe, yeah. that take, maybe that there's a lesson in there for us somewhere, you know, the fact that uh, we need to be thinking about these things. Absolutely, yeah. I, I did have the figures on how many um, birds that they uh, estimated were killed on our roads each day. And I did the calculation. I, I can't remember what it is now off the top of my head, but, uh, but it's astonishing numbers of birds that would have not died when we had that huge wow, reduction yeah. in car usage you know, in the early days. But you know, obviously the traffic's getting, getting back now. But, but yeah, and sadly, you know, I know it's, it's been absolutely tragic with this virus, but this is a natural process that when populations get to a certain level, you normally find diseases take over to reduce that population. So it's where nature clashes, isn't it, almost, in a way. It's where it there's that overlap doesn't work. And, um, and that's why it's so important to protect natural habitats, isn't it, with around the world? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but there is some incredible work being done. I mean, you, you're probably aware of the, uh, the NEP estate, yeah. you know, to see how to revert from a, a farm into a, into a nature reserve. And the stuff that's come back that is absolutely And, it, and it's incredible. quite quick, isn't it? I remember being in Africa years ago and, and it was at um, Mount Cameroon and it's volcanic. And, and actually, what, you'd go to one that was 20 years old, it'd be like the surface of the moon. And then you go to one that's 30 years old, it'd be all coated with orchid and fern and there were loads of insects on it. And then you go to one that's 80 years old, it'd be a little forest up to you. So nature, if given it time, it will recover, wouldn't it? It will recover. Oh, absolutely. You know, and we've seen that so many times with things, but it's so dependent on the environment. And if the environment has, has changed significantly, all the species that, you know, exist in that environment have to adapt accordingly and, and it gets the balance has to be restored mm. you know the things which are weaker will disappear the things which are stronger and the ones which can deal with those sort of changes in environmental conditions will take over but it still needs to have that interaction between all those different um components so it's like a succession isn't it like a succession in a woodland you get the smaller the short-living variety of species coming in first and the longer species you need to leave it to have that process exactly it is you know once you start looking into this and understanding these systems it's just absolutely fascinating <laughs> it is really you know and and it's almost like a, a light bulb moment sometimes you think oh yeah that's why it does that because you know <laughs> and, and yeah. things have evolved you know along those lines just like you know the, the blue tits have evolved to to have their you know young very early on which coincides with the the high levels of aphids and little caterpillars that uh, they collect you know everything's uh, happening for a reason eh? <laughs> well you're very is. yeah isn't it you're very passionate about it well, i know that you're really busy i know you're a man in demand but tell us about your speaking circuits i know you do a lot of gardening clubs this kind of thing there might be people listening to this who would love to book you so you know give us a bit of info on uh on, on yeah that. well it, the talk sort of started about uh Four or five years ago, I was asked, you know, by some local clubs to go and give a talk and thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and, and to be honest, I, I didn't want to charge to begin with. <laughs> but then I was asked to give a talk quite a long way away. And I said, I don't for nothing. It's about a 200 mile round trip. And when I got there, three people turned up. So, <laughs> so I thought, look, I've got, I, I'd, I'd, ha I'd have to do this properly. And it, it all goes through a business now. But um, 
so yeah, um, I, I, I do charge. I don't charge a lot, but I cover, had to cover my expenses in that. I got asked in about end of July whether I could do a Zoom talk. And I thought, I'd never done this before. So I decided to try it and it worked really well. And then I realized that, you know, I can now give talks to um, clubs all around the country um, and not incur any travel expenses. <laughs> yeah, so and keep your carbon footprint right down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and do them for, for the basic uh, cost of, of, of a local talk. And, and more and more clubs are finding how useful Zoom can be in keeping their their clubs together but i also do a fair bit on 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 radios now i'm i'm, I'm the, the the local bug man for, for radio norfolk and uh, <laughs> radio you go Suffolk. down to uh do you, do you work with toby don't you but buckland you do stuff with him as well don't you but yeah so toby's been asked asked me to do the bug clinic there for oh, three or three years now i think i do that at garden centers as well i just hold an event so it'd be like a butterfly. I, yeah. Some of them I gave a talk at and then I'd sit down and people would come along and ask questions and I can examine uh, plants that have got holes in the leaves and, and things like that. And, and with Toby again, Toby's got his uh, Sunday morning show for gardeners on BBC Radio Devon. And uh, every week now I have to record a three minute uh, piece on a particular bug. It's been going on for probably <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. You've got, look, let's face it. You've got plenty to choose from. They're not going to run out of them just yet. I'll well, say. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've, I've done, done this for two years now. I think I've got about um, 80 different bugs I've spoken about. So I'm thinking, what can I talk about now? So, so. You're getting to get edited in the line a little bit. Um, so if yes, someone so. wanted to book you, someone wanted to, you know, I want Ian Bedford to either Zoom, do it by Zoom, or come to a garden centre when things hopefully have returned to a bit more normal. How, is it easy to do that? Will you just a website or something we can get hold of you on? Yeah. Well, I have got a, a web page that's set up. I mean, best thing to do is just go on to, it has to be Google. It doesn't seem to work with the other searches. But if you just type Ian Bedford Speaker, but there's some contact details there where people can uh, get in contact. But, but yeah, as, as you can probably tell, I, I really am passionate about talking to like-minded people and, yeah. and enthusing people to try and get their gardens as environmentally friendly as possible and to... No, mate, I, I love it. I like a chat to you for a week, mate. It's uh, <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, I, love it. I mean, I remember when we first met. We were, well, obviously, you know I'm a very passionate gardener and entomologist. Yeah, it's just great coming across people who are just you know so, so enthused about what they do. And I, I, on behalf of Garden Organic, I'd like to say a big, big thank you for taking time out today for and chatting to me. No, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. I do hope you enjoyed hearing Ian and Chris chat. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our organic gardening podcasts. Every month we have a new guest, plus helpful tips and advice on how to grow the organic way. Bye for now. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. Music.